HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio, and it is my pleasure to be today on the phone with Haya, who I met at FarmHack Brooklyn, as part of Hi. a vital New York City farm team. Hello. Hi, Severin. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm glad to be talking with you today. Yeah. Um, so let's just make sure that everybody knows uh, you're in your very greenest first finished of the first season, um, mm-hmm. what's the report on, on, your, on your farm this season? Um, I had a fantastically successful first year beyond my expectations. I uh, had a small plot of land that I cultivated this year. I grew over 30 different varieties of organic vegetables and brought them into the city and did a small farm stand here in Brooklyn and a small CSA. Uh, every Tuesday night for about 12 weeks, and it was fantastic. By the end of the season, um, I did the farm stand in the evening hours so that people could come after work, and by the end of the season, you know, the farm stand started at 5 in the afternoon and was going almost till midnight with a real community that grew up around it. So it really was a great experience. And so this is your first season, and you were prepared by having taken the UVM Beginning Farmer Training Program. Uh, do you want to reflect for us about how important uh, that program was for you and uh, what other skills you felt like you brought to this first season? Sure. I had come to farming through a more academic interest. I was at the new school and studied food policy and um, agriculture, urban agriculture, and um, I found myself just heading more and more towards actual farming. 
but not having the skills to do it. I mean, you know, I, I knew about conceptually what I wanted to do, but didn't know how to actually put the seeds in the ground and grow things. So when I heard about this program that UVM was starting, I applied to it. And the idea of the program was to expose people to a lot of different farming ideas and a lot of different farms. And essentially, we worked on five or six different farms over the course of the season. And we were also exposed to business ideas that were specific to farming. And what that did for me is it really allowed me to plan my own farm and really, uh, you know, figure out what my ideas were, um, the vision that I had, as well as prepare me for the business side of farming and make sure that I, you know, had all the skills I needed to actually make it a successful Experience. I think a lot of people who get into farming are very enthusiastic and excited, but to make something really sustainable, you need it to also be financially sustainable. So that really helped prepare me um, for my first year. So you had a certain amount of business uh, savvy or business practice before, um, when you got into this UBM program where you started being exposed to the kinds of enterprise models um, of startup farmers, was it shocking to you how uh, modest the returns are? Or what was your first reaction to that reality? <laughs> well, um, that was a bit surprising, but I was, um, you know, prepared for that. Uh, what I found, especially being in Vermont in such a tight-knit community, of a tight-knit farming community that's up there, I found it very interesting that wherever we went to, you know, to tour a farm or a farm-related business, that people were very open about the finances with us. Um, you know, and, and what was interesting was that sometimes you would hear almost myths about people and their successes, and then we would meet someone in person and find out that it wasn't exactly, um, you know, the way the rumor on the ground was. For example, one guy was kind of known in the area as the butternut squash guy because he had bought all this equipment, and people thought he was so brilliant that he had, um, you know, one year when he had a big harvest, bought this equipment and was, processing butternut squash and making a lot of money off of that because he was selling it to people in a much more usable fashion. But when we met with him, he told us that wasn't really the case and that you really have to, um, you know, think through not just the first season but, you know, try to plan ahead for the third and fourth season and be really honest about, what you know, what, whether something's going to make money or whether you're drawn to it for more the romantic side of it. <laughs> and that was interesting, to hear people really encouraging us to kind of step back from the romanticism and the excitement of farming and plan it through be because they wanted us to really be successful. And they didn't want us to fall into what, you know, could be almost like a, the trap of this beautiful lifestyle that a lot of people are attracted to, but then, you know, become disillusioned after struggling for the first couple of years. So you responded to this challenge of don't be a romantic person by saying, oh, not only am I going to start a farm alone on Byard land, I'm also going to commute back and forth to Brooklyn where my love lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> took their romantic, they're chiding to heart, you big romantic. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, I, I think that one of the big lessons that I learned is um, to not get too um, stuck on one idea, to really be open to trying new things. And this year I tried sort of an experiment with the CSA that I did, and the idea of the experiment was 
people would pay up front like a regular CSA model for their share for the produce, um, but that they would be able to come to the farm stand and pick out what they wanted, which a lot of farmers that I spoke with thought that was maybe not the best idea because it's challenging for the farmer to not know what people will want more or less of. And I actually found that that model worked really well and that people were really happy. So I, I was open to the idea that it, that it could possibly not work, but what I found is that this might be a really good CSA model type, um, you know, like a farm stand CSA where people really pick out what they want for themselves. So what that also allowed me to do because I was creating a farm stand here in Brooklyn was, you know, spend some time with my boyfriend who still has his job here in the city, and we managed to kind of be, I don't know if it's bi-coastal, but, you know, bi-urban uh, in, during the, the growing season, which, which worked out, actually. So you're still together and you still want to farm. I'd say it's working out. Yeah, I still want to farm, and, you know, he's, he's starting to see the beauty of maybe moving away from the city at some point. So we're moving. We're moving in that direction slowly. Um, well, and, and, and obviously there are um, some pretty intense market advantages to, to keeping uh, one foot in the city. I just got an email today about this new... Uh, web interface for buying like local treats and local sweets and local, you know, highly overpriced uh, specialty food products for the holidays. And I was just looking at that, and and the further now I live even further away from the city, I don't even think about those kinds of markets anymore. Um, can you talk about the process of getting the food to the city and what that takes? Uh, in reality, I remember you had that white truck. <laughs> right, I had a I had a big uh, big farm van, um, and what I would do every week is pack up the van, you know, early Tuesday afternoon, um, and head down to the city, which was about a two hour drive, and then I would haul everything into the backyard, set up the farm stand. Um, one challenge was that I didn't have any refrigeration here in the city, even though I had a cooler up at the farm. So there were days when it was really hot here and it was kind of challenging to try to keep things fresh. Um, that was one interesting challenge. And I think in general the, the challenge of transportation is an issue that the agricultural community has, the fact that we're so, uh, you know, car-heavy and truck-heavy when it comes to transporting food is, is a really big issue, a big energy issue that we have. Um, I don't see a, a quick and easy solution to it. I know that here in the city, you know, the way it works is a lot of trucks come into Hunts Point, which is up in the Bronx, and that's a neighborhood that has some of the highest, you know, asthmatic rates and health issues because there are trucks idling for hours. Um, I don't know. It's, it's something that I'm, you know, when I'm working on the farm and have all those hours to think, that's one of the things that I'm thinking about is how to try to, find a, a better, smarter way to transport food into the city because I do see this urban-rural link as fairly essential for a, farming, a farmer's survival. You know, if I'm close enough to New York City to get into the city, I, I think that's, that's really essential. This past summer, I was at the Union Square Farmer's Market, and I actually met some farmers who were from Burlington, Vermont, and they drive in every week. They, drive, they do a six-and-a-half-hour drive back and forth because the city market here is so 
um, powerful. So I think that I'll, I'll definitely be maintaining that connection, but this, this question of transportation to me is important, and I, I don't see a clear solution to it yet, but I do think that um, with enough heads getting together on it, <laughs> I think we'll probably come up with something interesting. Uh, so let's talk about the the place that you farmed this summer and that area of New York. And um, there's pretty fun stuff happening around Walton and Mon- Monticello and, and the Catskills. Do you want to just give a little um, kind of rundown of the ag history of that area and, and what's going on there? Yeah, I think that um, it was. It used to be a much more um, agricultural area, and that over time, um, that definitely slowed down, as it has in most of the country. Um, but there's definitely a resurgence. There's a growing community of young people that are starting to, uh, you know, small operations. And I think um, just if, when I was researching, for example. Uh, farmers markets in the area, it was really interesting to me to note that a lot of the farmers markets were just one or two or even three years old, that there's definitely a growing interest in the people in the area, um, you know, who live there, and also the fact that that particular area is a big um, sum- second home summer destination for a lot of city people, and that it's it's really exciting for people to be able to go and buy local on the weekends. So... There's a lot of that going on, although it is very different than the Hudson Valley area. Um, it's definitely a much smaller community, although it is, it is growing. But I think the Hudson Valley is, um, you know, much more saturated with a lot of the local food movement than we are right now. So there's, there's actually a lot of opportunity. Um, are you within re- re- uh, range of, of the fracking that's, that's going on or No. We're definitely within the range, which is very troubling. Um, right now, the piece of land that I ended up on this past season, when I started the farm, was, um, by chance, a very good friend who I am partnering with um, had this land available, and we're actually looking to buy a larger piece of land and establish a proper home for Dreamland, which is the name of our community that we're, that we're establishing um, but I'm not sure that we're going to stay in the Monticello area because it's directly over the Marcella Shale. And th- that's a real troubling idea that, you know, a farm that, you know, requires access to clean water, that's something that, that may not be a guaranteed if we would invest in that area. So we're definitely watching what's going on um, politically to see if that's something that's perhaps going to be stayed. But... At this point, um, you know, we're actively looking for land, and we've started to look further east to try to avoid what will be the primary fracking zone. Right now, we're, we're pretty much in the center of it. Um, so what are people saying? So sorry to just hit this topic a little hard, but what are people saying in the town? What's the kind of word around what do people feel in the community like what's going to happen? Does it, it, feel, it sounds like it feels a little bit inevitable. Well, um, Monticello itself is a rather um, economically depressed area, and I think that the people who own land that could possibly be mined for you know, natural resources are, for the most part, excited about the economic possibility. And what's interesting about this issue is that 
um, you know, it's easy to kind of paint a picture until you meet the faces behind the, the opposite opinion. And when I meet people in town and have a conversation with them, you know, I go into Home Depot to pick up, you know, a box of screws or something, and I end up chatting with someone in line, and they're telling me that they're excited about fracking, you know, there's a history there that you can't deny that, that this area has been going through an economic decline for a very long time and that people are, are eager to see that change. So at the same time, there, there are people who feel very differently, including myself, that this is our environment and we need to preserve it and protect it, you know, not just for ourselves but for all the future generations who should be able to enjoy it. It's a beautiful area, and, you know, there are... There are some protected zones because that's where New York City's drinking water comes from. But um, it's, it's tough. It's, it's a tough issue because, um, you know, if there was some other um, exciting economic opportunity that you could, you know, point people towards instead, um, that would be great. But right now, this for, for a lot of people who own land up there, this is, um, you know, a very bright future that they haven't seen in a while. So it's a challenge. Well, and of course, we wish that, or I wish, especially, I wish that agriculture were a viable option for these families who own land and who had a history in farming in the area, but for whom that model, the model of small and medium-sized dairy farming and mixed mixed farming, you know, basically is not uh, economically viable. And that has that's obviously a political question. So it's, it's that whole you're saying the social, uh, like the social layer that you have through meeting the people, and the economic layer of you know possibly being in a boom, in a natural gas boom. Um, you know, I think it's, it's easy to forget that our that our farm policies that make it so much cheaper for food to come from California. Um, and serve New York City have, you know, disempowered and disenfranchised and set up the conditions for, you know, what essentially is an environmental conflict. So, blah, blah, blah. That was me being yeah. a policy wonk. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I think that being a policy wonk is important because, you know, things that are happening at the national and global and transnational level actually affect us on a daily basis. I mean, the idea that we are such a petroleum-based um, society is creating this situation that we're in now, the fact that fracking is, is such a possibility in New York State and is, you know, presenting a real challenge, um, you know, to having clean water and clean land. <laughs> so it, it, it really all does tie together. <laughs> I know I can get carried away talking about it sometimes, but um, it really does, does make a difference. And, and that's what I was also kind of mentioning before, this idea that, um, you know, transportation and how we transport our food is important because it all ties back to the same, um, like, energy backbone and, and how we're providing our, our energy resources. It all comes together. <laughs> it all comes together. So, so it's all come together in your mind. And tell me how have you, you say you're going to working on, a, you know, on expanding the dreamland concept. Um, does that dreamland concept involve something different, or is it just farming, or what's, 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 the, what's the big idea? Well, the big idea is that um, I'm 30 years old. I'm getting a little bit older, and I'm starting to think about the next phase in my life, and 
I have a lot of friends who are in the same boat who have lived in the city most of their lives and are starting to think about creating maybe a different kind of lifestyle and starting to think about moving out of the city and what that would look like. And the vision that we've come up with is a sustainable community um, that exists within a working organic farm. So the farm um, that I started this year is called Dreamland Harvest and the general you know, overall community, um, which is going to be um, a sustainable um, music and art creative community will be um, all located within the same, the same space. So the idea is to create a place where people who um, are looking for a permanent home can choose to come and, and move to and become part of the community, as well as create a place for people who um, just want to retreat a weekend, maybe, you know, to come and attend like a, an educational workshop um, to provide that space for people as well. Um, well, that's good. You lump in the, uh, the farmers with the artists and the musicians. Uh, all of those are beautiful cultural uh, sectors that are not known to be super profitable, but I love it. <laughs> I want to come. Um, and, and are you then, is the idea that you would build those or that you would adapt existing or is that still negotiable or how do you conceive of that happening? It's negotiable. The idea right now is we have several um, core partners and we're looking for land right now. One of the partners is uh, my good friend um, who has been running a music label for the past 10 years. So um, with him comes a whole community of musicians and artists. Um, the idea that we've been looking for um, is a larger piece of land, you know, like 80 to 100 acres that has a clean water source on it. And we've been open to the idea of getting, you know, an old rambling farmhouse and living in that for a while. But I think eventually what would happen is everyone would build their own, um, you know, homes and that we would also as a way to kind of make this whole thing financially sustainable over time as people join the community, they would buy a plot of land for their own home site, and that would eventually repay the initial cost of buying a larger piece of land for the initial um, group of partners. So essentially the founders would be putting up the capital, and then exactly. eventually they would get paid back slowly. Exactly. Uh, but well, obviously that is that's like so that's an interesting model because you know if you're looking across the country at what's going on, um, what's going on is that the people who have been farming are getting older, and that there's literally millions of acres of land whose future is uncertain and whose future could be um, as part of another farm, a nearby farm, or bigger farm, or housing development or fracking or whose future could be farming, but the the means to to lock that land up and preserve it for farming um, requires money. So yeah. thinking through that kind of innovative method to bridge the time gap and the money gap, that is the that's the goal. And sounds like you're smack on hitting it right on its head. Yeah, and, and because there's a music element involved as well, one of the big dreams that these guys have had is to be able to have a location to host a really big music festival every year, and that would be another source of income and also a way to bring people into the farm, into the community, to show them the space and the, the opportunities that it 
provides. Um, you know, we're excited to have a community center and host things like, you know, yoga workshops, permaculture courses. Um, there's um, a great uh, place in Vermont called Yestermorrow that, um, you know, teaches building, alternative building. So that's one of the kind of veins of uh, education that we'd like to offer. So I think there's going to be a, a lot of different layers that we build up over the years in, in the place itself. But this idea of having a couple people to come together to, you know, put down the capital to get the place going and then to slowly have these other income streams um, repay it is something that, that from, from every way, the angle that we've looked at it, we, we really think this is, this is going to be successful and a lot more stable for all of us collectively than if one of us would try to individually establish something like this. Well, and this is so much a part of the conversation that we've been having at FarmHack where really the, the community momentum that, that we found in that project comes from so many of us having the same insight, which is what, you know, sharing, sharing is really one of the best business strategies. You know, not only does it mean you won't be lonely, but it also means you might, like, actually get it done. Oh, absolutely. And I wouldn't be where I am today if not for all the people that have shared so much of their knowledge with me. I mean, I have a huge debt to pay forward for all the people along the way, whether it was the people, you know, in the program that I was in in Vermont or the farm in Costa Rica that I went to and inspired me. I mean, everyone along the way that's open to this idea of, you know, open source knowledge and, and wisdom is, is I'm really indebted to. And for me, this is one of my passions to be able to um, pay that forward. And it already happened this first season. I mean, without my even planning it, people would come up to visit for the weekend and, you know, would end up working alongside me on the farm and learning all sorts of things that they never knew before and, and having a path to connect with nature that wasn't available to them before. So it's already starting. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. I'm very excited. Now, do you have anything that you need to announce or CSAs that are available for next season or something in particular? Um, there will be a CSA next season, most definitely, um, because we're still looking for land and I'm not sure what the farm will look like next year yet. Um, I haven't, um, you know, really planned um, where people can sign up and, and the, the exact details, but um, we're on Facebook. People can look up Dreamland Harvest. We have a page there where we announce, um, you know, what's going on, the new CSA offerings, events, um, that are going on in Brooklyn or upstate. So if anyone's interested, they can look up Dreamland Harvest on on Facebook and follow us that way. That sounds like a good plan, and uh, I look forward to seeing you sometime soon. I don't know when it's going to be next, but um, I look forward to it. And I would remind everyone to keep abreast of these types of community events like Farm Hack and uh, the conference season, which is upon us, as a great place, if you're in the mood for sharing, to meet highly qualified um, colleagues, collaborators, conspirators, um, and, you know, smart business backgrounded pixies like Kaya, who is making amazing waves. Okay, <laughs> that's all. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Severin. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>